Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Dan Albrick. I'm with Leopardo, and I am Programs Co-Chair, along with Jeanette Outlaw with OFS as Programs Chair. Stand up, Jeanette. Say hi. Um, what a turnout today. Thanks, everybody, for coming today. What a, this, is, uh, this is great. Um, today's program is being podcast, so as you know, if you have any questions throughout or at the end, please raise your hand. Somebody will come around with a microphone so we can get what you say recorded and have have it recorded for life. Uh, mark your calendars, as mentioned, uh, the second Thursday of every month are our programs here at Maggiano's. So put that as a reoccurring event. Um, that being said, our next program is March 11th. And um, we, got a, we have a good topic here. It's kind of, the focus is gonna be really how the balance of power has shifted from the landlord to the tenant. And this is dri being driven by uh, kind of a client end user request. This is uh, Sandra Collins, who's the real estate services manager from US Cellular. She will be telling a story. Uh, her and uh, Paul Beitler kind of came up with, a, with the idea <clears throat> and how what, what the things have changed kind of throughout the process. Um, what uh, effects does this economic environment have on the end user, the legal side of things, landlords and lenders. And from the legal side, we have representing, we have uh, Stanley Stallworth, who's the partner in the real estate practice group for Sidley Austin, and then we are still yet in, uh, confirming our uh, landlord and lender at this point. So again, March 11th, our program, and tentatively have it titled Man Bites Dog. Um, what takes us to today's program, which is uh, Making the Grade. We have an all-star lineup of panelists today, so we're going to hear some uh, interesting uh, perspectives across the board. I'm going to uh, introduce our uh, moderator, Craig Castle, who will then uh, in turn bring up our panelists and introduce them as well. Uh, also on front of your tables um, are the uh, bios from everybody. Instead of spending the hour talking about uh, the credentials of everybody here, which we could make an entire program of, we figured we'd leave them for you to take a look at and uh, get to know who our uh, panelists are. So uh, Craig Castle is uh, vice president of the Tenant Advisory Group and their uh, education practice leader with Grubb and Ellis. I uh, joined the company in 2001 and serves as a lead strategist for the Tenant Advisory Group, a team of senior advisors within Grubb and Ellis located in all the major cities that represent multi-market corporate users of office space. Craig is directly responsible for team formation, creating and implementing overall strategy and negotiations. He has completed over a million square feet of transactions in the last 18 months. Very impressive. Very impressive. I didn't know there was that many transactions going on. That's great. Um, also serves strategic multi-market clients uh, such as Miller Coors, University of Phoenix, Morton Salt, Bound Financial Services, Mutual of Omaha, and Sitco Petroleum. Craig, welcome to the stage. A round of applause for Craig and all of our panelists. Turn it over to you, buddy. Well, thank you, Dan, and the Cornet Programs Committee for, um, for having us uh, share our conversations with you. I think that we're gonna have a phenomenal discussion today um, mainly in due to um, our dynamic panelists. And I wanted to invite them up to the stage right now. Um, we're going to get to some of their uh, bios in a little bit, but I wanted to invite them up to the stage right now um, at this time. I believe. My goal today is more of them less of me, I think that just makes us all better off. Before I formally introduce our panelists, I would like to take a few minutes to provide a, a brief overview, share some statistics uh, regarding each of our four main topics. 
um, you know, we, we're going to start with just some relevant statistics on big picture uh, on the education sector. Next, we're going to go into charter schools, which is the segment of kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, secondly, we're going to hit on nonprofit higher education, which is the Roosevelt's, the IITs, the DePaul's, Northwestern's. Um, next, we're going to hit into the for-profit higher education, which is the DeVries, the Kaplan's, the University of Phoenix, the Career Education Corporation. And then lastly, we're going to hit on student section, or I'm sorry, student housing sector. To jump right in into some of the relevant statistics, we want to provide a, a few uh, high-level stats regarding the overall industry. And right now, there's 74.9 million students enrolled in kindergarten through post-graduation, which is approximately one-fourth of the population over the age of four. Um, this graph shows uh, the age distribution of, of our population and, and where everybody uh, is going to school. Uh, additionally, there's an expected increase in this enrollment over the next eight years. So there's a 10% increase expected um, from age 25 and under, and 19% increase over the age of 25. So what is this attributed to? Well, one is population growth, obviously. But the second, and a very close second, is that people want to make more money. There is a direct correlation between degrees and a degree and your paycheck. We all know a few exceptions are out there, obviously. However, on average, the higher the degree, the more you'll get paid, and based on this statistic that we show, a person earning a high school diploma and the difference between a person earning an advanced degree is about $47,000. Something also to note is the cost for one full year of college, so tuition, room, and board, at a four-year college has doubled over the last 20 years. So again, tuition, room, and board for one full year over public, for-profit, and private schools have doubled over the last 20 years. Uh, not good for the parents out there in terms of uh, where, where this sector is going to go as well. Um, next, we're going to jump into charter schools. And some of you out there might ask, you know, what, what is a charter school? A charter school, it's a, it, it fits a niche between the private and the public, uh, public education in the K through 12 sector. They're funded with public money and serve as an alternative to regular public schools. There are currently over 5,000 charter schools serving 1.5 million students in 39 states and Washington, D.C. In Illinois, mostly in Chicago, there's 88 charter schools <laughs> serving 33,400 students. In 2005, there was only 15 charter operators in the city of Chicago. Now there's 35 charter operators. So it gives you an idea on where the exponential growth since 1992 in charter enrollment uh, has gone on the chart. The average enrollment of each charter school is, is approximately 372 students. At the same time, charter schools receive 30% less funding than conventional public schools. And also no funding for facilities, which is actually the most significant issue facing charter schools. So you have 30% less funding than conventional charter schools. You have an average enrollment of 372 students, and you have no facilities, or I'm sorry, no funding for facilities. We also looked at then how charter schools occupy real estate. As you can see, 65% lease space, 30% own, and 
um, do something else besides leasing or owning. The next topic is, is for-profit higher education. So again, the Roosevelt's, IITs, DePaul's, University of Chicago. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, there were 14 million projected students enrolled in classes at nonprofit college and universities in the fall of 2009, which was a 12% increase since 1980. So given a 30-year uh, horizon, there's a 12% increase in student population. There's an expected 9% national growth in enrollment for the next eight years, which is characterized um, and mainly driven in the southwestern states. So Arizona, Utah, Nevada, Texas, which also is driven by population growth. Illinois, on one hand, has seen a two point, well, will see a 2.3% growth in that time frame, while the Midwest region as a whole will be less than 1%. However, the Chicago MSA, out of 25 the largest MSAs, has the most students enrolled at 615,000 students in 209 different colleges and universities. The next section is, is for-profit higher education. So the Kaplan's University of Phoenix's career education to rise. Now, the for-profit education has a total student enrollment of, of 1.5 million in 2009, which represents a 9% market share in the overall higher education sector. Growth projections are 5 to 10% a year for the next 10 years. So it's conceivable that the for-profit education side will have a 14% market share before the year of 2020. So why is there so much growth in the for-profit sector? Well, I think uh, that's part of what we're going to discuss with our panel. Uh, but additionally, um, secular shifts in our economy from service, I'm sorry, from manufacturing-based jobs to service-based jobs. And additionally, the industry is counter-cyclical. The last topic we're going to share a few stats on is student housing. There are 16.2 million students in either the college undergraduate or graduate level, of which 25% live in on-campus, some type of on-campus accommodations. That leaves roughly between 10 and 11 million having other living arrangements, whether they live at home, whether they share an apartment, whether they share a house, whatever college students do and however they live, there's this whole other side that's interesting. But with no common tools or data to track this supply, the industry is, is and student housing is, is very fragmented at this point. Campus Advantage, who's here for our panel, is aware of approximately 300,000 beds operated by third-party student housing groups across the country, as that's all that they track. So as you can see, there is a huge potential in this sector. One point to note, the cost of living for off-campus housing is also slightly higher than living in on-campus accommodations. And that's something that we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, in, in our discussion. Now what I'd like to uh, introduce our panelists. The first on, on my right, my right um, is Phyllis Lockett. Um, and by the way, there's a few uh, bios on each table, so you can follow along if you'd like. Um, Phyllis Lockett is the founding president and CEO of the Renaissance School Fund, a venture philanthropy organization that invests in the startup of new public schools. Ms. Lockett is the former executive director of the Civic Consulting Alliance, a pro bono consulting firm sponsored by the Civic Committee of the Commercial Club of Chicago that leads strategic planning initiatives, process improvement, and program 
development projects for government agencies. Ms. Lockett has over 10 years of marketing experience, sales experience, and business development experience with premier companies, including IBM, Kraft Foods, and General Mills. Thank you very much, Phyllis. Phyllis, the Renaissance School Fund was established by Chicago Civic and Business Community to support Renaissance 2010. Can you share with the audience a little about Renaissance 2010 and, and what your goals to, to, to further charter school education in Chicago are, please? Thank you very much for, for having me. Um, and, and it's an opportunity to, a uh, wonderful opportunity to speak to the Cornet group about charter schools. Um, the, yes, the Civic Committee of the Commercial Club of Chicago and the uh, Chicago business community has been very much behind the charter school movement. Um, as many of you know, the very sad statistics of our public education system, not only in Chicago, but in this country. And um, charter schools are about choice. It's about, um, you know, working with uh, groups who have a proven track record of success with our most impoverished uh, students and, and our most underserved communities. And the idea was to identify those groups and replicate those models so more children can get served and get access to a higher quality education. Uh, we launched this effort in 2004. Uh, we had, I think, about 23 charter schools in Chicago. We now have 91. And um, the trajectory is going to continue. There is a lot of uh, interest and um, uh, uh, priority put forth by uh, Mayor Daly, uh, Ron Heberman, the head of our Chicago Public Schools, and the business community to continue this effort. We see that um, our projections suggest that by 2020, charter schools will represent about 20% of the Chicago public school market. Um, we uh, have uh, about um, in the top 10 non-selective enrollment public schools, uh, eight of them are charter schools, and we know that children are getting a terrific education. As Craig mentioned, one of the big issues facing charters are lack of facilities. Um, about 40% of the charter schools that we have helped to launch had to go into the private market because there weren't enough facilities available through the Chicago Public Schools District. Um, the challenge around this is that, it, that uh, uh, given our trajectory growth of what we're anticipating, it's not going to be a sustainable solution for charters to go and, and uh, build their own campuses, and that we need to come up with other mechanisms for them to get access to um, uh, you know, cheaper real estate buildings, um, and, and we're looking at creating partnerships that will enable the facilitation of this work. Um, so I will leave it at that, and I will look forward to uh, your questions about this important uh, work that's happening in Chicago. Thank you. Thanks, Phyllis. Can you hear me? Good. Um, next is Miroslava Krug, is a Senior Vice President for Finance and Administration and Chief Financial Officer of Roosevelt University, <coughs> and she has overall responsibility for the day-to-day -day operations of the Finance Department. Prior to her appointment at Roosevelt University in July of 08, Ms. Krug was Chief Financial Officer for the Chicago Housing Authority, where she managed all finance and cash management activities, an operating budget of $1 billion, a capital budget of $3.2 billion, and an asset portfolio of $400 million. Ms. Krug also spent 10 years in various international finance positions with United Airlines before the CHA. Miroslava, thanks again for joining us. Uh, Miroslava, most people might not know this, but Roosevelt University transitioned from a part-time to a full-time campus you know, about six years ago. Can you talk a little bit about the university's student demographic, how that's changed, mm -hmm. and how that affects the campus uh, now, please? Yeah, absolutely. Good afternoon. Um, probably most of you know that Roosevelt University is being known for being a part-time 
um, school. But in 2002, we started transitioning the school from being a part-time to a full-time, leveraging the location of the school, the quality of the education, and, and, and what the students were getting for their financial investments. In 2005, uh, we opened University Center, which is located in 525 South Wabash, after the mayor uh, told the school that he really wanted to make the, the South Loop a student center. So the, this is a non-for-profit li uh, limited liability partnership that was formed by Columbia College, Roosevelt University, and DePaul University, and have about 1,600 beds. Um, so Roosevelt was founded in 1945. Actually, we have 2,690 uh, undergraduates and 1,778 graduate headcount in the, in the fall of 2009. Uh, it's located in the historical auditorium building that is at 430 South Michigan Avenue and other locations. Um, it's mostly a full-time uh, traditional campus. We also have a campus in Chamber that it was founded in 1996 and have 1,277 undergraduates and 1,208 graduate headcount in the fall of 2009. And it's mostly... Uh, part-time emphasis professional um, for professionals. So I'm going to give you some statistics so you can see how the, the growth have affected and put so much stress in our facilities. Since the fall of 2004, our freshman application have increased by 134%. The freshman class size have grown from 275 in 2004 to 626 in the fall of 2009. That's a 128% increase. The full-time equivalents increased by 19% between 2004 and 2009. And actually, in the Chicago campus, 70% of our un undergraduate FTEs are full-time uh, full enrollees. Um, so, um, so with that said, in 2005, the Board of Trustees started looking at what does that mean for the university? Because the university is landlocked. We didn't own anything around uh, our campus. So in 2007, we went to the market, bought um, a property at 421 South Wabash, bought a parking lot in, four, in, the, in the corner of Congress and Wabash, and bought so five floors uh, in 226 South Michigan, which is a condominium um, uh, facility. And they're all classrooms and faculty and administrative offices. Uh, so after that, we said, well, we're going to continue to grow. This is not going to stop here. And when we did the, all the acquisitions in 2005, we knew that we were going to run out of capacity very soon. Uh, in 425, we have a building that is currently under demolition, and we're building a two-story tower in that facility that is going to accommodate it's about, uh, it's 190 million construction project right now. It will have 632 beds in floor 15 to 32. In the middle of the building, there will be academic space, state-of-the-art labs and administrative offices and large classrooms. And in the bottom of the building will be um, a lot of the students' life facilities. So we will open in 2012 with 632 beds. Uh, we have about 477 uh, student beds in University Center. And when we open in 2012, we will be right at capacity. We'll have about 1,200 beds. We'll meet the capacity. And our, our market study said that we, uh, in 2012, we will need about 1,400 beds. 
So we know that we're opening the building will still be out of bed for uh, that time. Um, so, um, so we're very excited about having this tower behind this historical building because it really will change the footprint of the university to a different level and which change the perception of the university too. Um, I think uh, one more thing that I want to share with you is, as I said, we have two campuses and, and mostly all the transition have happened in Chicago. So our focus have been turned into our chamber campus, where mostly is a part-time campus. Right now, we're looking into the entire campus from the academics offerings, facilities, students. What is, that, what is that that we need to do in order to make that campus as successful as the Chicago campus? So it's under complete rethinking right now. So that's opportunity in there. And I, I think I will leave it in there until I hear from your questions. Thank you, Miroslava. Next is Dr. Patricia Laughlin, PhD, is Vice President for Finance and Administration for Illinois Institute of Technology and is responsible for the overall financial performance of IIT. Dr. Laughlin previously served as an Associate Dean for Administration in the Carnegie Mellon College of Engineering. Dr. Laughlin also has been a speaker or consultant devoted for, to strengthening university and other nonprofit organize, organizations administration and increasing the representation of women and underrepresented minorities in STEM fields. Pat recently moved to Chicago five months ago from Pittsburgh to take on this position. Pat, can you just share a little with the audience on, on what uh, attracted you to IIT and, and, and Chicago, please? Absolutely. Chicago has always struck me as being a very exciting city. And the first time I came here about 20 years ago, I was struck by how beautiful it is and what down-to-earth people seem to live in Chicago, as well as a city that really took civic responsibility very seriously. At that time, I really had no idea that I would end up in Chicago and that my career would lead me to IIT. Why IIT? I'm a sucker for urban campuses. I have to admit it, just the way it is. I like the mission of an urban campus. And I truly appreciate a university that has a lot of ties to other institutions within the city. Um, we were just talking about the connectedness between IIT and the program, uh, the charter school program. So that's one of the big reasons why IIT was very attractive. But there were other reasons as well, because IIT is in transformation right now. It has just finished a very aggressive strategic plan that is focusing on excellence and innovation and bringing innovation and interdisciplinary work into the undergraduate through the graduate programs of the university. In addition, the university is very, very focused on several other initiatives related to um, biosciences sustainability, green technology. Uh, we have several institutes on campus that are driving the research mission, which also has a tendency to uh, have an impact on the undergraduate student programs, in that all of our undergraduate students, before they graduate, take part in a two-semester sequence that focus on solutions to real-world problems. And they can be very diverse kinds of experiences. Oftentimes, 
uh, industry also works with the students to help ground the project in a real world application. So IIT struck me as an institution that had an awful lot of momentum at this point in time. But there are some other issues. And some of those issues have to do with real estate, physical plant, and the buildings. Our main campus has 120 acres, 51 buildings, 19 of which are historic buildings, the Mies campus. That's both a blessing and a curse. When you have historic structures, and at the same time, you're focused on state-of-the-art laboratories and state-of-the-art classrooms, it's very, very difficult to try to retrofit. So we have some of those issues. Um, our newest buildings were brought online about six years ago. And if you've been out in the State Street corridor, you know that the uh, State Street Village, the residence halls, and the uh, Campus Community Center, the MTCC, have transformed that area on State Street. And those are the historic structures of tomorrow because they're very modern. They don't look like the campuses that most of us think about when we think of the brick, ivy-covered walls. And um, those are the buildings that, if we don't pay attention to the maintenance issues now, will become deferred maintenance issues of the future. So in sum, the reason that I'm here is because Chicago's a great city, IIT is a great university, and this was too good of a challenge to pass up. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, next is Steve Altschul. He's the executive director of New Campuses for Kaplan Higher Education, part of Kaplan Inc., a wholly owned subsidiary of the Washington Post. Mr. Altschul maintains the organic growth of Kaplan's ground-based post-secondary schools from site selection to business case development to opening an accredited post-secondary school. Prior to joining Kaplan, Mr. Alcho led the successful implementation of Operation Virtual Shield for the Public Building Commission of Chicago. Steve, in your bio, we talked a little bit about uh, the growth of Kaplan's ground-based post-secondary schools. Can you elaborate more on the ground-based strategy and, and what does that entail, please? Sure, Craig. And let me just um, help set the stage so that people who might be familiar with Kaplan but not with uh, Kaplan Higher Education division of Kaplan understand what we're talking about. Kaplan Higher Education is one of three operating divisions of Kaplan Inc. The most well-known uh, traditionally has been the test preparation business. People could get uh, preparation for SAT, ACT, um, MCATs, etc. That division still exists and is quite large. We also have a Kaplan Professional Division, which offers uh, test preparation services for people seeking uh, certifications in the finance and real estate industries. The higher education division of Kaplan uh, brought in $1.3 billion of revenue in 2008. That was a 25% increase over 2007. And enrollments for that same time period grew by 24% to 96,400. And we're a publicly uh, traded part of the Washington Post, so I can't give full figures for 2009. But if you look at what the quarterly performance has been for us, as well as some of the competitors uh, in the, in the for-profit education space, you have no doubt that, that 2009, again, will, will close out to be a very good year for, for our company, as well as others in the space. Um, Kaplan Higher Education operates 81 uh, accredited post-secondary schools in 22 different states. 
And those, those 81 locations account for approximately 2.4 million square feet of space that we primarily lease own uh, a very, very small uh, percentage. Kaplan Higher Education's history um, is relatively short. The company was founded in 2000 through an acquisition of a group of approximately 30 for-profit schools out of Atlanta, Georgia. And through acquisition and more recently through organic growth, the company has grown to the 81 locations that we have today. Um, and in talking with Craig about what's fueled the enrollment growth in the industry, I think that there are, um, there are a couple of key points and, and quotes that I'd, like to, that I'd like to bring to the table. One is that uh, community colleges, which are non-traditional students, um, sometimes come to us as, as fallout from community colleges or there are students who graduated high school but, and, and thought about going to college later and for whatever reason never made it. The community college system in the United States nationally receives about 60% of their operating funds from state and local sources um, compared to for-profit education which receives zero. Um, it's just a, a different economic model that we operate under. Um, we feel it's more flexible. We feel that we can bring curriculum to relevant curriculum to students in very, very quickly. Um, and that's something that the students who come to our schools are seeking. They come to our schools because, again, they're non-traditional students. They're, they have a very, very difficult work-life balance that they have to maintain. They were not academic superstars in their high school career. Um, but as Craig pointed out in his earlier remarks at the start of the presentation, they understand you know, concretely the difference in earning power that someone even with an associate degree has or even someone with uh, a, a certificate, a nine-month certificate or diploma, a graduate of a medical assisting or medical billing and coding degree, that person is going to have some type of career trajectory over time that someone with a high school degree or a GED is unlikely to equal both in terms of their career advancement and the economic stability that, um, that the student's going to bring to their family. So uh, to give a little bit more in terms of uh, where we've opened up in the past few years, in 2008, which was really the first organic growth that we've had in, in, in three years, uh, we opened a campus in Cincinnati and, and Indianapolis. In 2009, we opened campuses in Boston, Arlington, Texas, Chula Vista, California, and Pembroke Pines, Florida, as well as a new business model for us uh, up in Milwaukee. We opened a Kaplan University Learning Center, uh, which is a smaller footprint and is designed to cater more towards students that are seeking bachelor's degrees in primarily an online environment and taking advantage of what te technology has enabled the education industry to do. But perhaps the student wants to be able to come into a center in the downtown area in Milwaukee and before they enroll or after enrolling, have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone, have a question about an academic plan, have a question answered about career services, work with someone on a career plan. And Kaplan has, uh, has invested in building out the Milwaukee facility to, to serve those types of students. So when I think about um, what the real estate market over the past 12 months has done and what that's enabled Kaplan to do as a result, what, we, what we've done, what we tried to do, what our strategy has been is to take advantage of the general softness in the marketplace, to go into existing markets where we want to open multiple campuses, India, Indianapolis, Boston, Arlington, Texas, Chula Vista, 
all, all our instances where we've opened a second or third campus in a metro area. And we've taken advantage of some non-traditional uh, non space for us. In Arlington, Texas, we uh, were the first tenant to move into a, uh, a distribution facility that had excellent access to, uh, to interstate highways, which is important for our business model, offered excellent signage potential, again, important for our business model, it was a LEED certified building. I didn't personally know that the uh, distribution industry was building LEED certified buildings, but this one was LEED Silver. And they were looking for tenants. Typically, they would not have been interested in an educational use that requires, on average, 10 to 1 parking, 10 you know, parking per thousand. That's not something that they would typically look for. But rather than have their distribution center sit empty, uh, the lender was very anxious to engage with our corporate real estate group in New York to do a deal. And Kaplan builds very, if you've, we don't have any properties in Metro Chicago. We have two in, Indi in uh, Northwest Indiana. We have Merrillville and, and Hammond campuses, plus the center in Milwaukee. If you're ever in one of those locations, I invite you to go into the centers and take a look. Um, I don't want to get into details of how much money we spend, but if you walk into one of the centers, you'll see that this is not a, this is not something to, that someone, that one of our graduates who's coming out of a non-traditional vocational school is going to be embarrassed about. We spend a lot of money and have highly uh, educated and, and well-expertised individuals from the practitioner areas that the students are learning about on campus and helping the students learn. So we think it's um, a great business model. The economics right now are, are bearing that out to be true. And one of the challenges that I have as someone looking to open new campuses around the country is working with more landlords to, to make them comfortable with non-traditional uses, um, specifically in shopping centers and taking advantage of some of the big box retail brands that have gone out of business, both regionally and nationally, in the past 12 to 18 months. And rather than having those boxes, 100,000 square foot boxes, 30,000 square foot boxes, sit empty for a period of years until the economy recovers, and if a new retail model ever comes forward that's going to take up that much space, Kaplan is anxious to uh, talk to those landlords about using their facilities, investing money to make them uh, a resource for the community and help educate the students and uh, build a workforce for the local community. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Um, next, Dan Oltersdorf. Uh, Dan serves as the Vice President for Residence Life at Campus Advantage, Inc., a student housing firm based in Austin, Texas. Mr. Oltersdorf oversees Campus Advantage's Students First Residence Life program, as well as training initiatives with Campus Advantage's 900 plus team members around the country. Mr. Oltersdorf has spent the last 12 years in student housing, working in both on and off campus housing. He's a recognized speaker, published author of two books, and founder of the student housing resource website, residentassistant.com. Dan, Campus Advantage manages over 30,000 beds, is the largest student housing consultant, as well as the largest third party manager of student housing in the country, all of which is inevitably your responsibility. Can you talk about what students want today in modern student housing and a few of the trends in the industry for 2010, please? Sure. Thanks. <clears throat> Is this working? Yeah. All right. So we're just almost all of them. Um, what do students want? Uh, everything <laughs> today. Uh, they're really high expectations. Um, if any of you have ever read any of the re current research on generational trends, uh, right now our traditional age college students are part of the millennial generation, Generation Y. 
Uh, most, most researchers say that started with uh, births in around 1982. And there's a lot of interesting research out there about what the needs, what the wants are uh, of this current generation. Um, and there's a lot of really exciting attributes that they have as well that I'll, I'll speak to. But they have high expectations. They have high expectations for customer service. They have high expectations for the amenities. Now, that's, not, that's nothing new. Um, if you've been to any modern student housing, purpose-built student housing facilities in the last 10 years, um, if you're anything like me, you're probably blown away. It's nothing like what uh, I was in when I was in college, you know, a center block dormitory style hallway with 50 guys. I shared a bathroom. Um, we're talking about resort style. Uh, we, we've got a property with screened in cabana porches and a sand beach um, by the resort style pool with a lazy river and a foosball table out there. I mean, it's absolutely insane. And, and it, it runs the gamut. We, we run traditional older style buildings as well. Um, but the amenities uh, are a high expectation. It's almost a given now. Um, things like all-inclusive rent structures, they uh, want it convenient. Um, we include you know, their cable and their internet. Um, the uh, individual liability leasing is something that's been around for a while. So if we've got a four-bedroom unit, there's four different leases in there. We'll do roommate matching. Uh, all, all those amenities are expected. But at the end of the day, what we're finding to be um, realized more by a lot of student housing operators is that that's still just the box. And, and today's students, they want more now. Uh, they, they want the experience, and they want a sense of community. And so when I, I'm asked what, what do students really want beyond all that stuff, um, really, first and foremost, with privacy, uh, they really want privacy. Most of our current college students have never shared a bedroom uh, with a sibling. They've been in bigger homes. And so single bedroom, ideally single uh, private bathroom. So a lot of our apartment units are 4 fours. Three threes, two twos, uh, singles sell out first at every single one of our new properties. Um, but they want a sense of community at the same time. So they want that experience. They want to be connected. You know, the research shows that if students are part of a community that's engaged and that connects them with their institution, they're going to have higher GPAs. They're going to be retained at the institution for longer, and they're going to have a higher graduation rate. And so, even in privatized off-campus student housing, understanding that that's the reality, ends up making good business sense. Um, getting the students connected with the institution. Uh, we have a, we, our residence life program, we call it our Students First program, has a developmental model around it where we've got social programming going on and uh, life skills programming, financial education, career preparation. And we're not even affiliated with the institution at the majority of our, uh, of our properties. And so students want that. They want to get connected. Um, we had a kind of speed dating social at one of our properties last night and had uh, several hundred people show up. Uh, they really want that sense of connectivity, the peer leaders who understand how to do roommate conflict mediation, and just give them that, that experience that you really don't get in a multifamily um, approach. And, and we see a lot where we, we have to come in and pick the pieces up from a multifamily operator who's tried to come in and, and be student housing, um, or, or try to develop student housing with this idea that with those numbers that Craig shared, if you build it, they will come. Uh, it may be true, but they won't stay if you don't operate it the right way, or it becomes animal house, or uh, all the different things that can, that can happen if student housing isn't done right. So, so they want the but they, the, all the amenities, but it really is the experience and the privacy are the, probably the two things that I would key in on. It, it's interesting, and, and I'm trying to make uh, some type of correlation between you know, what Roosevelt and IIT have on, on an urban setting. Is there a difference between you know, an urban student housing setting and a you know, more rural or, or you know, state school type of setting. It, do students, is, 
Is your product different or do you run it differently? I would say that the, uh, the, the product is obviously going to be different simply because of constraints of real estate and land. You know, you're going to have a lot of urban infill that's going to create a different product than, you know, Blacksburg, Virginia, where we've got a 26-acre site with 52 buildings. You know, that's not a reality in an urban environment. The core philosophy is the same, um, really connecting the students with themselves, their institution, with one another. And the uh, operation varies whether we're affiliated with the institution versus unaffiliated. Uh, just because those connections are more formal. But in general, you know, the, the approach is similar. Uh, and the reality is you can't make a completely cookie-cutter approach because every student group is, is different. Got it. If I could direct this, Mayor Slava, just to you, just because Roosevelt's building this uh, student housing right now, are, are some of the trends that, that Dan talked about, is that what some of the students at Roosevelt are telling you in terms of, or, or not, maybe not you, but, but to the administration on, on what their needs are moving forward? Uh, no, I think he covered all. Um, it's a high expectation, privacy, privacy and, and being involved in, in the community. Um, you know, most of all, we'll kill for a view. You know, we're building these beds in floor 15 to 32. And, uh, and we have beds at 55 East Washington, and it's overlooking the Millennium Park. All our beds overlook the, uh, the lake and, and, and Millennium Park. Um, so they love it. They're not, they don't die for the, for the view. We probably most of us will die for those views. They don't. They, it's the amenities, privacy, and how connected they are with the university. Uh, that's, and uh, so um, I would say it's a struggle for us at the universities that we have to balance all this high expectation. Everyone wants to be in a private room and in an urban setting. Uh, primes, you know, where we are in Michigan Avenue, students want to be close to the school. We cannot get uh, a dormitory in Lincoln Park for them because they're not close to the school and it's a retention issue. So we have to have a land or lease uh, facilities very close to our facilities. So when you have all these high expectations and prime land and, you know, balancing the cost of education, um, it, it's a very tough juggling, uh, trying to be competitive and trying to be in prime line. But all the things that Dan mentioned is, I think, is across the board. Sure. Pat, can I assume that, that, yeah, I was going to let you, can I assume that it's similar with IIT? Absolutely. And that's uh, certainly one of the challenges. Um, one of the other challenges for us is that students come in, you alluded to it a little bit with your beach, uh, with the expectation that there will also be athletic facilities for them. And we're not talking about athletic facilities for the athletes. We're talking about the, uh, the gym equipment, um, the stair steppers, the exercise bikes, whatever. So there's also that aspect of almost creating or replicating a fitness club or, or a health club for students as well. I want to um, just kind of cha change direction a little bit and, and just direct this question um, to Phyllis. You know, in, in terms of I know we had talked about you know, 60% of, of the student housing is, is leased and 30% and is owned. Can you tell us, Phyllis, what, uh, I'm sorry, of charter schools? Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what other real estate opportunities are out there? Because I know the focus for your groups are, are in some of these underdeveloped neighborhoods. And, and so, you know, if you could just describe you know, a little bit about how the search happens and, and where it, just how the process works and, and kind of how it's going. The, um, actually, in Chicago, um, closer to 40% of the charter schools are in private uh, situations. So, um, you know, the, 
one of the challenges, obviously, is that this effort is targeted to our most underserved communities. So you're in blighted community areas that don't have a lot of alternative options uh, beyond the actual public school buildings. Um, in a lot of cases, they go into archdiocese buildings, and um, uh, the archdiocese is not been uh, the most cooperative. They will generally uh, won't sell. They'll but and and they'll put all the rehab uh, responsibility on the charter school organization. So um, th many of them will, will opt uh, that route. Uh, some um, have uh, entered into um, leasing arrangements with um, other nonprofit organizations that that have that have moved out or they'll acquire buildings. Um, from uh, you know anything. I mean, at this point, warehouses. Um, um, there's a there's a, a group that's actually considering an old uh, grocery store space, um, you know, et cetera. And then um, several actually have gone, um, you know, and, and built new. Um, you know, one of our, our issues is that because it's uh, such a political um, issue for um, many reasons, the charter schools don't have access to the uh, the state uh, capital funds. Um, or the city's capital funds uh, in most cases. So, you know, they, in many cases, they've issued their own bonds um, or, or, or they'll go, you know, they've, they've, they'll, they'll um, access the um, IFF, for example, to get uh, low-term uh, debt to uh, pursue these options of rehab and or uh, new construction. Um, you know, as we currently, you know, we, we are looking at about 50, at least $50 million of need that are out there. We, we have uh, about seven schools now that uh, need buildings. Um, they are in temporary situations, and as their, um, their growth model, uh, they add uh, students every year until they're at full capacity. They know they're not going to be able to sustain themselves in their current sites. So this is a really, really big deal, and one of the um, areas that our organization is pursuing a solution for. There are um, a couple of uh, examples uh, on the East Coast. There's a group called Civic Builders that has created a nonprofit organization that has, um, you know, inherently created a real estate firm for charter schools. And there's a similar analog on the uh, West Coast uh, called Pacific Charter Corporation. So we are looking at um, a mechanism of creating something similar. Uh, to take this burden off these operators so they can focus on what they do best, which is to deliver education to students. Phyllis, can you just talk, you know, I mean, obviously, where the facility, but, but what is the waiting list for, for, for charter schools and, and, and you know, to try and get into them and, and students that want to have this alternative choice? Sure. There's um, about a, we've got a 200, 260% demand. Uh, right now, there, we've, uh, we've got charter schools that have over 10,000 uh, students on, on the waiting list. Um, in fact, my organization hosted a major event uh, at Soldiers Field a couple of weeks ago uh, where we had about 80 of the charter school campuses represented. Um, over 5,000 families came searching for options for their children. So it is a huge need in our city. Thank you. And you had talked a little bit about um, how some, some of the charter schools had issued bonds. Um, Miroslava, if you don't mind talking a little bit about um, the process that Roosevelt went through when they were um, you know, trying to finance uh, the building that you purchased on, on Wabash, how that process worked, because you issued bonds, correct? Right. Can you just talk, and talk to the audience a little bit about, you know, I would think it's challenging to get financing right now in, in, this, in this day of the market, so I Absolutely. think it's pretty interesting it just just of what was accomplished and and and, and how it took place. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, um, the university have done all the acquisitions through banks that are issued through the Illinois Finance Authority. 
It takes about, this was um, 183 million bond issuance. It was a lot of debt for the university. So uh, it took about a year to get this building financed. Um, and and what, one of the things, I think it's probably, we could say that there is five main major areas where you have to go through in order to get financing with bonds. And I think the, the first one is uh, really to select your financing team. You know, when, when you're going to leverage your balance sheet highly, you know, you have to select the, the very, very well people that can get you uh, uh, there. So you need to select your financial advisors, your real estate advisors, you, you know, all, all the attorneys that you have to put in these transactions and who is going to be your investment and banker. And uh, the fact that the investment banker have to have a lot of capacity. If you go to the bank, to the market, and the bonds doesn't get sold, that they can take it for you. I would say the second thing is, you know, the university uh, is a non-for-profit, but it's not, it's not authorized to issue, to issue tax exempt bonds, so you have to select an issuer, being the Illinois Finance Authority or uh, the city of Chicago. Um, I would say the third thing, thing is if you are going to be rated and your debt is going to be rated or you are already rated and, and you're going to put more debt, you really have to start talking very early with uh, rating agencies and telling them what the project is going to be about, um, what type of debt uh, size it is, you know, what are the key trends, are you going to be able to sustain growth to pay the debt service, what is your historical growth and, and is sustainable. And also start talking about uh, management capacity. Management capacity in these days and age is very important for the rating agency and for the investors. Um, one thing that, that we did a little bit different from, uh, probably from my past experience of issuing debt is um, we went to every institutional investor and talked to them. Normally in different market conditions, uh, you let the, the investment banker talk to the institutional investor about you, about your education. Uh, we did road shows. We talked to the investor. We explained what are we trying to do. We were leveraged. It was almost 120% of the balance sheet. Uh, we talked to them what are we doing. We're transforming ourselves. This is important. It's critical for the university. We have to do it now. We cannot do it tomorrow. We have to do it now. Uh, so that was a big step in order to get this financing done. And I think the last thing will be, you know, trying to get your board very well involved. Uh, higher ed, you know, boards are very, I would say, very large. And, um, and you have to get them involved, that they understand what are you trying to do, what, what does that mean for the university, because you will need to get approval from them on security packages for ban issuance. Um, that service reserves, so they have to be very well involved. They understand the process. They don't, they don't become increasingly nervous halfway of the financing, so they have to be involved in the beginning. Um, and I say at the end is you go to the market. So uh, it mostly takes a year. If you're going to do over $100 million on capital project, it will take about a year to go to the market from day one to try to get the money to, to, to the project. I don't know if that answers. Oh, it's perfect. I think that's exactly what, is that the only, if you're going to, you know, build a new building or you're going to renovate, and this is kind of it for, for Dan or, or, or Pat or Miroslav, if you're going to build a new building or, or add new or renovate, is that the only option to, to issue bonds, you know, depending on, the, you know, is there, what are the other options available to, um, to use or to, to 
you know, nonprofit educate, you know, is there, what, what can we do? Um, there are several options. For us, um, the cost of capital for issuing bonds, uh, it, was, it was cheaper, but you can get fundraising to be coming into the financing. You can get uh, funding from the state, from the city. Uh, you know, you can put uh, as many sources of funding that you have into uh, financing. For us, due to the fact that we went to the market um, you know, in December 2009 and all the crisis that has been in the market, uh, we funded from fundraising the pre-development cost that we, we undertook about $18 million. We took it out of fundraising and then we financed the rest completely with bonds. Perfect. I would Perfect. say it depends Please. on what it is that you're trying to accomplish because philanthropy certainly would play a much different role in a new building than it possibly might in renovations. Givers like to see their name on a fresh new building or a fresh new lab, but aren't necessarily excited about shoring up the outside facade of a historic building. Sure. So. No, that's absolutely right. Um, changing direction a little bit, I want to talk, Deanna, just about specific regions. And is there growth potential in, in, in kind of where you guys are looking to, to get more involved in, and, you know, is it Southwest, is it Midwest? You know, where, where are you kind of targeting um, you know, your efforts right now? Based on enrollment projections, the South is definitely an area where we're seeing a lot of growth. Um, you mentioned the Southwest, and we're seeing that um, enrollment increasing there and just population projections. So I'd say those are the two areas that I would pick out. Midwest, uh, there's a lot there too. Um, we're not seeing as much in the Northeast. And you know, I think that um, Pacific Northwest, as much as we want to get up there, um, it, that's difficult because of rental rates and trying to make the numbers actually work. Uh, it tends to be a little more difficult to put those projects together. Got it, got it. Uh, Steve, a little bit now, is, is there an area, I mean, you had talked about some organic growth. Is there any, there any acquisitions, you know, that, you know, is that type of growth at all happening right now at Kaplan or projected to, to happen or in certain areas? Yeah, I, mean, I can't get into specifics on acquisitions for Understood. obvious reasons, but I think that Generally, if you look at how the for-profit education sector is doing in this economy, the companies are almost exclusively doing very well, which makes them expensive. So I think that's another reason um, that we've decided to go the organic route as opposed to doing acquisitions. Sure. Uh, Dan, can you touch on what impact has the recession had on, on, on you know, construction, on you know, certain projects that you guys have, consulting, things like that? Can you elaborate a little bit on that, something sure. you and I talked about on the phone? Yeah, I think uh, there are three areas that I've seen the recession impact us. One is on the development and acquisitions, which, you know, we're predominantly a third-party manager, so our clients are putting together these, these deals. We're working with them on doing market studies. Uh, but the reality is there hasn't been a lot of money flowing. And so that's one area is just that there's a lot of stalled projects, and I'm sure a lot of people here identify with that in just about every sector. Um, although with student housing, it's, fairly, it's being seen and, and increasingly seen as a fairly recession-resistant. Uh, real estate sector, and so we're seeing a lot more movement happen. Um, so that's good. The uh, the other area that we're really feeling out, and we're starting to see more, is that the the demographics are shifting as people start to feel the hit of the economy more. People are making different choices about where they're going to get their education or where they're going to get the first two years of their education. So a lot of our uh, we're seeing more housing at two-year institutions uh, where students realize that, it, that that could be a smart financial choice, save a lot of money, but they still want that college experience. Uh, we're seeing a lot of growth there. Some of the more expensive tier one institutions 
uh, maybe seeing a drop off. It really depends uh, based on region. And because student housing is increasing in popularity, um, there are some areas that are simply overbuilt. Uh, Gainesville, Florida is an example of that. There's about 4,000 empty beds sitting off campus. I and mean, we're literally giving away scooters to people who signed a lease. Um, so it, it, it varies from, uh, from market to market. Should we open up to questions? Five minutes. Um, just, just, a, just a couple other um, uh, questions to, to, to our panelists. Um, we, we had talked about why, Steve, can, can you talk a little bit about why real estate's owned or leased for, for Kaplan? Why, why do they decide to, to lease versus own? I think um, one of the other panelists mentioned focusing on what, what our core business is and what we do best. And for Kaplan, that's, that's educating. Or for Kaplan Higher Education, that's educating. And we have a corporate real estate group um, that's headquartered in our New York office. Uh, Scott Openlander here uh, in Chicago and some of his colleagues here as well. But the primary business of our company is, is education. That's what we do well. There have been instances either through acquisition um, or I don't think we've done a build to suit in, in, in some time. It just seems that the, the, the complexity of becoming uh, a property manager in addition to running the school, which comes with its own level of complexity, isn't something that we need to, to engage in as long as we have good landlords to work with. And we've been, sometimes it ebbs and flows in terms of the availability of good landlords, but in general, we've been able to, uh, to get into market. And so that's what the route we've chosen to go. Sure, sure. I think we'd, we'd like to um, open it up to questions to the audience. Uh, if there's anything that uh, the audience would like to ask any of our panelists, uh, please don't be afraid. Is it uh, on yet? Yes, sir. Uh, this message would be particularly for Dan. Um, are, are you acquisitive or any of your, your partners acquisitive in the Midwest? And uh, would Illinois, particularly Macomb at Western Illinois University, be on that target list? We're always, we're always looking. Right now, we're, um, you know, we, we do target some areas, but we're wide open uh, for opportunities. Um, as Scott said when we were on the phone, we're kind of drinking out of a fire hose right now. There's a lot coming in. So we, um, you know, always are, would love to, to see if there's a mutual fit. So I'll give, I'll give you a card. There's a couple in the back. Hi, this is in relation to the charter schools. Can you just give me an idea of a, what a typical charter school size and requirements might be? Yes, um, in Chicago, the um, average size is about 600 students. We, um, I think uh, Craig put some initial estimates of 300 or so. Um, if you look at the early round of charters, they were in that range, but uh, we know that that does not make a financially sustainable model given the per pupil dollars that we get from the state. So they're in the upward uh, range of 600 students, um, both for high school as well as elementary school. Dan, um, I'm just curious, have you seen an increase in evictions in your student housing? Increase in evictions? Right. 
We haven't. Um, I would say we're, we, we've had to become more selective with uh, qualifying, qualifying folks. Uh, where we've seen an increase is where we've taken over projects where the previous management company um, didn't pre-qualify well. And so you've got outstanding debt and folks, you know, the finances are becoming the issue. So we try to avoid that on the front end with pre-qualifying. Because you have the guarantor, um, which is the nice thing with student housing, is that the guarantor is on the lease. It's pretty hard to evict somebody too, isn't it? Hard to evict somebody? Yeah. It depends on the state. Okay. You know, in Texas, you just get the shotgun. Um, <laughs> and in California, you wait six months. But uh, so. Uh, I heard a couple of references about uh, dealing with <coughs> traditional landlords, institutional, whomever, um, and convincing them that your use would be compliant with if you're in a multi-tenant facility. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges or uh, the advantages uh, and how you're selling that? Um, perhaps it's easier in this environment, and you did acknowledge that about the distribution building. I'm just curious as to your experience. If it's a compliance issue, I don't know if this is working or not. If it's a compliance issue, then we're well prepared and well versed in going through whatever zoning uh, zoning hearings we have to go through to and work with the local municipality on those issues. It, we typically bump into uh, restrictive covenants in leases in multi-tenant facilities, a shopping center, for example, where there's a single tenant who has in their standard corporate lease that educational use in a neighboring space is, is prohibited and the landlord will sign that deal to get the national retailer in. And then there's usually very little incentive for someone in, in corporate at Target, for example, to you know, authorize the overriding of that clause of the lease to allow Kaplan to move in five years into, into the existing lease. Um, it's just not, there's, there's, no, there's, there's little upside for that person at corporate signing off on that. Um, so sometimes it's, it's a non-starter and we just have to move on. Other times uh, we work with landlords. We were um, successful in Chula Vista, California, working with General Growth um, to get a, a school put in uh, their uh, Chula Vista shopping center. And I think that that is working out nicely right now. We feel, and we obviously know the demographics of our student, uh, the household income, their propensity for purchasing at certain stores, the, you know, the full demographic analysis. We have all that information, obviously. Uh, and we, sh we share that with landlords and attempt to build the case that our students are likely going to be good customers for your center, for, your, for the neighboring stores, et cetera. And it's, that meets with varying degrees of receptivity, just depending on the, on the individual circumstances. But personally, I, I find it um, somewhat sad to be driving around California and look at Mervyn's stores that have closed, 100,000 square foot you know, boxes that are sitting in shopping centers and landlords, maybe they're still getting uh, rent on some of that space or a portion of rent for some you know, indeterminate period moving forward. Uh, but at some point for the local community, it's better to have a viable business, in our case one that's helping the, the local inhabitants, rather than having a monument to a business that's that's gone under and waiting five to ten years for someone to come up with an idea on how that space can be can be utilized. I think that repurposing is going to be very important moving forward, and uh, I, we're ready to to help the landlords do that. 
This is a question for the whole board. Where do you see students going in five years? Obviously, the economic situation we're in has affected business. Uh, hopefully, the days of lazy rivers are behind us in dormitories. Um, but are they much more frugal? I mean, there's big changes in the classrooms. Teachers are teaching with Twitter now in the classroom. Um, what do you see on your campus that is progressive now that's different than it was maybe five or 10 years ago? Um, uh, we, we've seen that the growth will continue because we, we're in the peak of the high school graduates and nationwide we are in the peak of the uh, high school graduates. So uh, we don't see that this is, this is going to start coming down probably in the next two or three years, but right now we're anticipating that that we will continue, or Roosevelt is anticipating that we will continue growing at a rate of 5% year over year. Uh, I, I guess I'd answer this a little bit differently. Um, we have about one third of our student population that's undergraduate students and two thirds are graduate students. So uh, we have a very, uh, we're weighted very heavily on professional master's degrees and we continue to see that area as a growth potential. Um, but to answer your question a little bit differently, individually, students are really trying to make a connection between what they're learning in the classroom and what their preferences are. So for instance, sustainability and environmental awareness and issues play out all the way through a student's experience on the campus because their expectation is that in the dining hall, what they see will be better practices and processes so that individual water bottles won't be available, but you'll see a much more conservative view in terms of um, sustainability issues. They expect to learn about those technologies, but they expect to live them as well. And I think that that has created a, a much more aware student that wants to work on projects and are very enthusiastic about working on projects and trying to apply what they're learning and also push their interest into their learning experience. Uh, Craig mentioned earlier that Enrollment will, you know, enrollment is projected to continue to increase in the future and, you know, the education sector is kind of inherently non-cyclical. But with that said, is there any concern that some of the enrollment today is coming from jobs being lost and people going back to school? With that in mind, is there any concern about any overbuilding on the student housing supply side or, you know, the education side in general? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, that's an issue, and it's something that we're taking into consideration, um, especially as we look at uh, beds, residence halls, et cetera. Yeah, yeah I just want to, I mean, I, I mentioned in my opening remarks that 2008 enrollment grew 24% over 2007, which is, you know, a, a tremendous number of people, and we're obviously not opening that many more campuses. We feel that technology as an enabler to deliver educational content to students is something that is going to become even more pervasive in the next five years than it already is today. I mean, for-profit is obviously heavy in, in technology today, online universities, and even the traditional not-for-profit schools are moving heavily into, uh, into content delivery over, uh, over the internet and technology for the reasons you alluded to. I mean, you, you can't 
build and then constrict as quickly as, as the economic cycle sometimes mandate. And the demand for services, uh, for educational services, uh, will continue as people need to be more educated even for entry-level jobs. I mean, as manufacturing goes away, a lot of our courses are in allied health. And students who are coming in to become a medical assistant need an ever-increasing level of education to operate the relatively simple equipment at a doctor's office. As, as the services that, that we seek out as, as citizens become more complicated to deliver, and education required to deliver those services rises, people are going to need to continue and increase their education, and technology is, is an enabler for that. And I would say most of our... Most of our market research doesn't show that there's a huge need for more housing for that population specifically, because a lot of those, as you know, was mentioned, are non-traditional students, people coming back. They may already have families. Um, so we don't feel that that is necessarily driving the housing need quite as much as some of the more traditional aging graduate students who are coming back full time. And I think that we're, you know, we're seeing in general, whether it's non-traditional or traditional, back to the previous question, I think if we're just going to see more and more, I guess, a savvy, practical approach from our students. Um, they've seen this economic downturn, they've seen how it's affected their parents, and they're looking for bang for the buck, and even in their housing experience. Well, how is this going to make me more prepared for when I'm done? Um, you know, and we're talking about our financial success seminars and career workshops and all that. We're actually getting students who are coming to those and requesting them, whereas 10 years ago it was like, you know, pulling teeth trying to get people to, to do things that are educational, and now they're asking for them. There are any other questions? Okay, thanks uh, Craig for moderating and thank you to all of our panelists. Please uh, fill out the uh, sheets in front of you. We appreciate your feedback and thank you again.